Jesus then also functions as our, our vicar. And vicar means one who is a substitute or stands in the place of. A stand-in kind of idea. That's what's going on here with vicar. And we get the word vicarious from that. So vicarious means that you are getting the experience through somebody else. So you have parents who force their children to go to soccer and dance and everything else, and the parents sit in the stands, and they are more animated and more concerned about what's going on than the kid is because they're having a vicarious experience through the life of that child, and the child is living out their dreams for themselves that never materialized, and now, by golly, they're going to happen to that kid. So you have this kind of vicarious thing, and that's rather a negative thing. But vicarious, when we talk about it theologically, refers to Jesus substituting himself in our place and then becoming the sin-bearer in our stead. This gets to, as I've mentioned before, Luther's teaching of the blessed exchange. And he loved to talk about the blessed exchange. Christ takes my sin, and he pays the price for my sin, and then what do I get in exchange for that? I give him my sin, and he gives me his righteousness. He gives me his forgiveness. He gives me his holiness and perfection. Not a very good deal for God, but that's the beauty of it. That's why it's a blessed exchange. My sin goes to God, and his righteousness comes to me, and I get what I don't deserve. It's a blessed exchange. <coughs> that's what the vicarious substitution is all about. Jesus stands in and takes the weight for me. What does the name Jesus actually mean? Remember, it comes. You'll see this, especially around Jews for Jesus, Messianic Jews. Yeah, literally, Jesus is the Greek form of Yeshua, and Joshua and Jesus really have the same exact Hebrew derivative. They're both translating Yeshua, just different ways of doing it. So Jesus is translating Yeshua, and Joshua is translating Yeshua. And so the kid who's named Joshua is really just named Jesus. They just didn't call him that. So that's what's going on here. And what does Joshua or Yeshua mean? Among us? No, that's Emmanuel. Okay, which is close. It means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. And by the way, that's why you have so many Hebrew names that start with J in English or in German, because you're translating the Y sound, the Yod, in Hebrew. Because all these names have this kind of Y or Yah sort of a thing. Elijah, the J-A-H at the end. Eli means God. Jah, God is Lord. Okay? God is Yahweh. And Yoel, even my name, is Yahweh is Elohim. Yahweh is God. That's what it means. And so you have all these Hebrew words with Yah in it referring to Yahweh, or El referring to God. Israel, one who wrestles with El, God. You know, see, so don't be surprised by that. It's all over the place. Which also helps you with your spelling, though, because you'll never misspell Israel and make it I-S-R-E-A-L. Because even though people pronounce it that way all the time, Israel, it's not what it is, it's Israel. And so the L, you've got to get the God in there, E-L. Always count for that. So Joshua, Yeshua, means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. 
So the name is no accident, quite intentional. Was the name unique to Jesus of Nazareth? No, it was a rather common name. It's like being born in Mexico today. There were Jesuses all over the place. And so it was a rather a common name, not an unusual name, not unique. And so that's why he was even designated Jesus of Nazareth. So it was a common hope of the people. Yahweh saves. Yeah, that's right. And, oh, and they're also naming their kid after Joshua, great Old Testament guy. And we do the same thing still today. Pick an Old Testament guy or a New Testament character and name him. And the joke here is, that, of course, that seminarians always go for the Old Testament names for their kids. And the more bizarre, the better. So you get Noah's running around and Abimelech's and Methuselah's. And not quite that bad. That gets close. So when you, if you are blessed with children here, be as creative as you can. And crook up that good Old Testament name. I'm still waiting for the little, little girl running around named J.L., but I haven't met her yet. I think that's pretty cool, too. Especially, you know, you know the story of J.L., right? Come on, you just did Old Testament. How did you pass the qualifier? Yes, the tent peg through the temple of Sisera. What a gal, man. Yes, all right, that's J.L. All right, anyway, be creative with your name choice. So Jesus means Savior, salvation. Now, the other thing to realize is, so if Jesus means Yahweh saves, Savior, to call Jesus Savior, simply means the one who saves us, the one who brings salvation. Well, let's pause here just a minute, even though we're not talking so much about salvation. What do we mean by salvation anyway? Save from what? What's this salvation mean? From death. Salvation from death, okay. From sin. Well, one more if you're going to be Lutheran. Thank you. Yeah, and the power of the devil. You've read your small catechism, which you all should do in preparation for the test. Okay? Go back and look at your small catechism. So we're saved from sin, death, and the power of the devil. No doubt about it. American Christians tend to be rather narrow in their understanding of salvation. And we tend to think about salvation is all about me and me getting my little sorry self saved. So I get to go to heaven. But salvation is so much wider than that. If you read the Gospel of Luke and you hear Mary talking about salvation, she talks about the poor being lifted up and the, the mighty being downcast. She talks about everything being set right. Salvation, scripturally, is much wider than simply you or a few individuals being rescued out of the darkness of the world. Salvation, scripturally speaking, is the whole entire creation being put back where it belongs. The whole thing being restored. God's plan, that remember that I gave you that word economy? His economy, his oikonomia, that's the, the Greek word, the household law. God's plan of salvation is not so hopelessly narrow that he's going to pluck a few people out. He is going to restore the whole entire creation. He's putting things back. And so when the parousia happens and Christ comes in glory, it is the restoration of the whole creation. All of creation is groaning, waiting for that day when Christ comes and the sons of God are revealed. When that happens, everything's put back. And so it's much wider than just a few individuals. And this also helps us remember that Christianity is not an individualistic religion. And American Christians are really good at doing that as well. It's a personal thing. It's a private thing. It's between me and God. That's not true. It's between God and the whole creation. You're part of the creation. You have a responsibility to the wider creation as well. And that's why you don't go worshiping God in your deer blind. You go to church where other Christians are, and you hang out with them, even if you don't like them. 
because it's your responsibility. So the salvation is very wide and very broad. The whole of creation is being redeemed and brought back to where it's supposed to be. All right. Kolb gets into talking about motifs or ways of talking about salvation. So let's do that a little bit now and consider that. Somewhere once, where they had a whiteboard on rollers, and you push a button and it goes, zzzz, and you get fresh, clean board. It was really cool. And it was fun to play with, too. You know? So I could just flip between screens, you know. It was great. Maybe someday we'll get that kind of advancement here, and we can play around in here, too. Anyway, for today.